Welcome to Empathy Power Up, a collaboration of two people who connected during the pandemic through their love of empathy and action. Two people from very different backgrounds, helping each other find ways to love themselves, understand their experiences better, and help reverse the rise of narcissism and the divides in our communities. We will cover various topics about the human experience to help us power up on tools of empathy and emotional intelligence in the pursuit of one simple goal, create a world where people seek to understand themselves and each other. This is a learning journey amongst fellow humans. We're all just figuring out life together. Imagine you grew up in a world where there weren't books about people like you. If you had, say you were a woman and you didn't see representation of women on TV or stories of women in books and media and and this, the aspects of your identity, your personhood wasn't shared in school or wasn't allowed to talk about in school, wasn't something that even um, was ex- talked about at, at home. That is sort of the reality I grew up in and a lot of people grew up in. Queer people, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, plus people. We grew up in a world where media representation was so sparse. And if there was any, it was queer people were shown as villains or or clown, uh, like or, or made fun of. And I just think of that as this dystopian fantasy but this was my reality it was a reality of it is a reality of so many queer people and what's happening now is it it is becoming another cycle of history that's continuing when we saw all this progress about queer identity and representation and media but as we see more of that where people are able to be free truly free and express themselves and just live their life seven states are now have book bans in the United States already that are banning books around empathy, diversity, queer experience in schools in in, in public institutions. And this erasure, this this erasure of our identity is happening. And it's happening not just in in a small pocket, but it is something that is almost like a cycle repeating itself. And so this question comes into mind is why is it so important and so impactful to erase what's written down for us, what is represented for us, not allowed to be shared, not allowed to be talked about. And that brings us to this idea, this topic that we're talking about today. It's the worship of the written word. It's one of the characteristics that Tema Kuhn talks in her in her work about the characteristics of white supremacy. And it is a, such a big characteristic of our culture that we live in globally. And it's it's a, such a powerful thing because it is a way to control. It is a way to hold power. It is a way to maintain sup- supremacy, hierarchy, uh, hoard the power and, and control who has the power. And the idea that if we can erase all these stories, then the power will be maintained. Because if the, if the stories are there, if they're told, if they're shared, then people will be able to see different perspectives. And that is something that if this characteristic controls because what is written and what is allowed to be written and what is allowed to be shared is worshipped and that is the only truth that exists. 
So, Amy, let's talk a little bit about worship of the written word. Mm. Such a meaty topic um, in particular, um, because, you know, there's many different aspects to this piece around written, um, the worship of written word. And I look at it from the two words of worship and then and then the phrase written word. Um, When we look at the idea of worship, um, worship means that you're treating someone or something with a reverence and adoration appropriate to a deity. Um, So you're putting them on a pedestal. And then worship of the written word is honoring only what is written and only that is written is a narrow, is, is it to a narrow standard. And Temo continues to say, even when that written, what is written is full of misinformation and lies. It's an erasure of the wide range of ways we can communicate with each other and all living things. What Tema says and in in this this, this um, explanation is that if it's not in a memo, it doesn't exist. The organization does not take into account or value other ways in which information gets shared. And those with strong documentation and writing skills are more highly valued, even as organizations where, um, where there's ability to relate to others is key to the mission. So they really, you know, anybody who has that kind of like extra special skills are put on that pedestal and you know, other ways of knowing are not considered. Yeah. And before colonization, the land belonged to the community. Um, the community, not just of humans, but life that was thriving in there. It was it was part of the ecosystem. It was the, the earth depended on the caretakers, the life that exists on the planet. And it in return care, takes care of them and gives them abundance. And we didn't have papers. We didn't have written words and things at that time. It was it was shared through stories, through traditions, through rituals, through songs, through dance, through experiences and, and understanding the ecosystem. And it was thriving. It was maintaining. It was working towards a sustainable balance. And colonization brought this idea of written word. Like, where is your paper? This land doesn't belong to you because it's not written down on the paper that we manage and control because we have force and power. And I don't trust you. And so it it started there. It's this idea that um, my lens is the lens that is important because I've written it down and I'm passing that over and to from one generation to the next through the writing. The way I do science is the way the right way to do the science. And that's it. Native science or the natural science that was understood for years and decades and generations that existed before colonization was erased intentionally. They put kids and people from native uh, communities and brought them to schools and erased their personhood. They brainwashed them. They changed their culture. They got them to say, either you die or to exist, you have to change to this, this culture. And what that did is erase the stories of this knowledge that existed, that was shared through songs, the language that was, it was, they weren't even allowed to speak their language. And so, so many languages that had so much knowledge was gone. So I, I want to, make sure I explain that I'm not against writing things down. I write a lot. 
and I enjoy that experience. I think it's one of the ways I communicate in addition to this, like we're talking, this podcast is another form of communication and sharing knowledge and sharing stories and we're recording it. And yes, it could be written down as well. It's not, a writing is a good behavior because it, it allows us to think, it allows us to process things and it allows us to share knowledge at scale in many ways now in the new digital world, in this globalized world. However, I think we need to understand that written word is being weaponized because we see erasure. We see that, okay, only the things that are staying are allowed to be true. And the truth of other forms of communication, lived experiences, all of these other things that exist isn't real. And it's weaponized against that. Um, in like written in, like written word in the historical context is, a, is an example where it's used in like the worship of the constitution. The Constitution is this document that was written hundreds of years ago, and and it was written for that time to understand and build a foundation. And it it's it doesn't mean we don't. It was a guiding principle. It was a way for us to understand the world, live in a society where we can work to live with each other. But it was a document where supremacy, white supremacy, was enshrined in it. Slavery was enshrined in it, and the system that the world they understood with limited knowledge, with lack of science and limited knowledge, they wrote something. But what do we see right now? People will hold on to those documents. It's very difficult to change the constitution and they will hold on to whatever's written and what would the forefathers want? And that's what we see. We see that mo movement happening where it's the worship of this document and this constitution is because it protects the people in power to stay in power and it erases everyone else's experience. Um, and it's it's almost similar to religion. We will say, what would God want? Or what would Jesus want? And now we're talking about these people in the past who existed for a, bl less, a blimp in the past for less life than probably most of the people are living now because our life expectancy is higher than there as well. And we're seeing this movement around, no, my rights are protected. So I am not going to, I'm not going to change anything because this is helping me. And that, that, that control, that power is driving that worship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, the, our country's founding, um, at the country's founding where, where the constitution was created, nearly 20% of the population of the U S um, which was founded on the principles of liberty and equality, 20% of that population lived in bondage as slaves. And, uh, one of our forefathers, Thomas Jefferson, um, profited directly off the institution of slavery. He called slavery a moral depravity and a hideous blot. And, but he continued to hold nearly 600 human beings as property his entire adult life according, and this is what's interesting, it's according to the museum of his own home, Monticello. And so they've had to kind of, you know, they, they write this on their, on their website um, and in the, the hit the home itself and they, they address this. So at the end of the day, Jefferson, Jefferson was a hypocrite trying to take that moral, moral high road when he was acting differently. And this actually came to mind because just yesterday um, I was in visiting the cherry blossoms in uh, DC and, and around the tidal basin is the Jefferson Memorial. And I live in Washington, DC and it's, it's a, it's a joyous thing I get to do every year. And it's like peak bloom. 
And I, this is the first time I've actually went inside and looked at all of the, the entire memorial to kind of see what it was about, even though I've lived in DC for 12 years. Um, and this quote, this quote is etched into the walls of this memorial. And I think it's really interesting. It says laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered and manners and opinions change. With a change of circumstances, institutions must advance also to keep pace with the times. And it shocked me to get to see that on the wall yesterday. I have a picture of it. I think we can use that in her social media post. We'll <laughs> be like, hey, everybody, this is what he said. Um, but like, you know, that's that's proof right there that even our forefathers were like, we should change this, you know? And and like based on the how when we become more enlightened, when new truths are discovered and things like that. And I often think about, you know, the hypocritical nature of our forefathers and somehow today we also are hypocritical in the way we say things and do things. Um, but I often think about what our forefathers would have said written in the constitution if they lived today. Um, what would they have, we have updated and changed um, that if when the constitution is held as the ultimate authority, what does, but it doesn't really reflect our current day thinking. And those who interpret that constitution, which is usually the Supreme Court and other courts seem to be making decisions that are against our popular opinion because this document says it's so. So like, that's one of many reasons, many ways we worship the written word, but Kevin, I'm curious, like, do you have any other examples that might come to mind? Yeah, I mean, we see this very much in Western medicine. We see this in science and Western medicine where uh, there was, again, a lot of erasure and in, in, um, white doctors were like, oh, they passed laws that stopped um, doulas that were primarily people, women of color that were doing this and providing services from practicing and, and erasing their practice and all the knowledge they brought in. And what ended up happening is uh, C-section amounts went up and then especially around uh, around women uh, of color, the um, health con conditions during pregnancy and deaths and, and negative health habits increased because of this, because they, were, they wanted to control who did it. And we see this again with the DSM, the very famous document, DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is the handbook used by healthcare professionals in the United States and much of the world as the authoritative guide in diagnosis of mental disorders. And so many mental health disorders weren't in there. And then people who have these disorders were experiencing, would come to doctors, would come to the experience, and they were they weren't listened to because it was not in the DSM five. So they were giving wrong diagnosis. They were giving wrong uh, therapy or healing or not even listened to. It. It's like, oh no, you've got some something else. We're gonna not listen to you. You're just you're just crazy or whatever. And it was this idea that just because it's not in the book, it can't be true. And that was the culture. So that's another example where we when we learn something in Western medicine, we see this. Oh, oh I didn't learn this, so it can't be true. Versus understanding that. That is one way I learned it. And maybe there's everyone else has their own experiences can bring their expertise and the different ways we can learn it. This worship of not questioning, not empathizing. You don't, unlive, you don't exist. 
unless you show me your ID. That is the world we live in. You are not a person in any in, in, if you don't have an ID. Who are you? The idea that people who were born here, the dreamers, they're undocumented citizens, so to speak, but the, if because they don't have the papers, they can't have a full life and live freely in this country. They're living with this constant burden. So these examples of DSM sort of remind me this of um, how these things sort of start showing up in uh, our personal lives. Because this written, worship of the written word, I know we're talking about some very macro things like societal things like constitution, the DSM, the medicine, but we we see a lot of this starting to show up that we don't even realize, and I didn't realize it. And for example, when I first started dating my husband in the initial years, he would, I'm from India and I grew up learning about plant-based medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, which is very popular. And I experienced it myself. My That was one of the gifts that my mom has given me in life, this idea of it. And I brought that with me and it was dismissed because it wasn't part of the way the Western medicine does clinical testing. It wasn't part of the way that it is done through the Western medicine. And he he would not participate in, in that process when I offered uh, plant-based medicine or talked about it. And this is one of the examples where it showed up in my life with my husband. And I do this a lot as well. And what I did was, yeah, you're right. It's not in the Western medicine. So I started rejecting what I had learned from years ago and it started racing from it from my head. And I'm still on that journey to go back to it because I'm like, wait, there was so much to it. Plant-based medicine, it, it did wonders for me when I was young. And why am I rejecting it? Because it wasn't written in the Western way of thinking. And, and so he didn't participate for a while, but now he's starting to realize and he's starting to use some of the medicine I brought and some of the things that we're sharing in there and starting to see the benefit of it. So- we, we, it is one of the, those, these are some examples that we can not only see at the societal level, but we also see it in our personal lives. Amy, I'm sure you've, you've experienced some of this mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think about this in particular when it comes to, uh, you know, and a personal story is just last week I was having lunch with a friend and she wanted advice about writing a book. Mm -hmm. And in the conversation we were having, she had specific questions on like, what were the outcomes that I had from writing a book? She was very in her head, right? She was mm -hmm. very like, you know, um, like intellectualizing this. Mm -hmm. And I really mentioned to her that writing a book like made me kind of an authority on a topic that that I wanted to be in. And um, in a way that um, our, your idea is copyrighted in publishing your book. But, and if, and like, and then I started thinking about like, it was like, okay, well, I remember when I was writing my book, somebody said that about 2% of people set out to write books, actually finish them. <laughs> so it's like a privilege that I had the time and effort and, and, and knowledge to, to put myself to write this book. And, um, and then I wonder like, who am, who says that because I'm blessed to have written a book and that my words matter over other people. So, you know, for this, this book for me and, and the work that I do is much an, it's an exploration of who I am and it's my wish and learnings for people leading change in the world with like empathy and compassion. And I'm an empath and a highly sensitive person. And, and, 
a good portion of my wisdom comes from intuition and senses, right? A highly sensitive person means that all of my senses are heightened. And so that gives that gives me that superpower that I can actually start sensing before other people can sense it, but you can't write that down. It's a sense. And as I've gone further in that exploration of this topic, I've really leaned into that intuition and sensing that I have. And how do I know what I know? Um, and I think of it as a special kind of magic that I bring to my work that can't easily be replaced. And when we hold what is written above everything else, we are unable to or refuse to acknowledge information that is shared through stories through embodied knowing, through that intuition and the wide range of ways that we individually and collectively learn and know. Um, and then also I, on the other side of me, like I'm an empath and a highly sensitive person, but I'm also a leader of change. And so when, when we're creating a better future, um, we try to center our work. And like when we talk about equity, humility, et cetera, centering our p- people centering the work on people who are actually affected by the change you're making. And we call this like working with people with living or lived experience. And it's so not invaluable and can't be replicated. It's something that we um, it's embodied in their, in their soul. And it's like, and having that person on your team, like adds so much value because they have context and, um, and, you know, when it's really centered on the people that you're designing with and you bring people onto the team, like over and over again, it shows that like you're going to have a better product at the end of the day. So I'm just curious, you know, at, for me, what are some th- ways that you learn and explore the world? Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this, what you shared about the lived experience and your journey of your being this highly sensitive person. It, it, this book, I think you might've recommended to me inflamed by Rupa Maria and Raj Patel. I finished the book recently. Um, I think two days ago and oh my goodness, it's one of my favorite books now ever. <laughs> and, and it's just, it, it it's so much and com- talks about this. Um, the idea of, medicine coming from all these different aspects and the justice aspect towards the Western medicine. It's such a, I recommend folks, mm-hmm. if you get a chance to listen, uh, take a, check out that book, pick up that book. But that's one of the ways is I am now exploring the word and, and trying to learn by getting as many perspectives as I can, talking to people, listening to stories that I don't traditionally listen to, or talking, uh, reading books that are outside my comfort zone or uh, reaching out and finding new ways of exploring perspectives that I don't um, have. Like one of the things like I'm currently trying to explore is um, the perspective of people who are like, like for example, my mom is very religious and I am still having a, and I am not, and I'm trying to understand her perspective. I'm trying to understand her aspect and how she sees the world in a way in, in my journey to finding self-love and finding love for her as well. And so these are some ways that I think that we're we're sort of exploring. And, and like, I think one thing you mentioned is this lived, lived experience. It's like a type of knowledge. And I think that's an interesting um, conversation I wanted to tap into is like, there's this idea that knowledge is like in books. And that is true and absolutely the case. But there's, you mentioned one, which is lived experiences. 
And that's another form of knowledge. So I would love to understand a little bit more and dive into this idea of what are the types of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I there's so many different kinds of things, and and this has been studied before. And and like I actually in as part of my my journey, I've written playbooks and toolkits and tip sheets, and it's a new guide, right? Like it's just like it's stuff that I've written down, right? I've done this many many times over, and it's like and. And it's a lot of people think it was like, if you build it, they will come, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, because it's like, okay, you make this thing and then it's like the definitive source, right? But um, what I've found and I do in my practice is I pair it with a community of practice because um, because at the end of the day, you can lead, you need to lead the horse to water and have them drink it. And then you have to apply it in practice, but those things are not easily written down because it's like mentoring, it's coaching, it's other things that, you know, like I said before, like the sensing and the intuition. And um, there are three things off the top of my head, like three different kinds of knowledge that we have um, that are relevant here because, you know, and only one of them have to do with the written word. Number one, and and this one is has to do with explicit knowledge. So that's the knowledge covering topics that are easily easy to document in writing and share at scale. And, and that's what we think of as structured information. So we can put that in a knowledge base and document that. And you might see this in the work with standard operating procedures, right? Like this is the way we do something. Um, but then there's two other ways, um, one way being implicit knowledge, which is essentially learned skills or know-how. And it's gained by taking that explicit knowledge and applying it in a specific situation. So if you have explicit knowledge and they say, here's how you do it, but you don't know how to do it in context of something, you're going to be missing out. So implicit knowledge is gained when you learn the best way to do something in that context. And you take your experience and synthesize it with the other learned information to solve, maybe solve something that's completely new. And that is very difficult to document and um, scale that work. Yeah. And I think there's two things in this that really are interesting is with this idea of explicit knowledge is I think we have to, under and this sort of will, will continue this conversation when we talk a little bit about antidotes, but this idea of this explicit knowledge is seeing who's written it. Where is this coming from? For example, we've heard so many studies, right? And we'll see it in the news is like, hey, drinking one glass of wine is good for your heart or health. But then, and then that's plastered all over the news and that becomes explicit knowledge because someone did the study. But if you if you dig deeper, we find that these studies are sponsored by the alcohol industry. They're done to promote some specific type of behavior and it's biased. And so I think this idea also with explicit knowledge that I want to make sure is just keep that in mind that even though if it's sometimes it's written down, it it is on, on us to look in who has written it, what is the framing of it, what have they omitted, what have they not included? into that conversation. I think that's where the implicit knowledge comes in as well. Because when we start, when we take something and we're struggling to understand it in our world, in our experience, in my life, I would, I'm like, okay, let me try to first understand where this is coming from and how do I make it practical? And, and maybe the answer is not applying it absolutely the way it is, but maybe modifying it or understanding what I can take from it and make it my own. 
Mm-hmm. And you said there was another knowledge that you want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the third one is um, called tacit knowledge. It's um, intangible information that can be difficult to explain in a more straightforward forward way. So like things that you are understood without being said, and it's usually personal or cultural. Some of it might have to do with body language, right? Like how can you write down body language, for example, right? And um, it applies to a specific situation. So it's hard to transfer from person to person and you can't store or share that information. So um, you're reading social cues, personal factors that come together in the knowledge. Um, so those are just three examples when we talk about tacit knowledge, implicit knowledge, explicit knowledge, and only one of them has to do with a written word. Mm-hmm. And um, in a personal level, I also know that there's wisdom in the community and the collective knowing. And then when we feel amongst each other, what we feel in our body and emotions, like being in the collective, that's something that you can't write down. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we there's data that says that we feel more connected when we sing with each other. And because our culture doesn't value oral traditions or storytelling wisdom, that's uh, that's a recipe for disaster also, because even though that's fuels that are human connection. Um, so I think this is a place where we can start to recognize all the various ways we connect and engage with each other and start celebrating that the many ways of knowing, the sensing, the intuition, the storytelling that makes that human experience. And so just curious, Kevin, like from your perspective, like, are do you, are there other things that we should be thinking of when we're trying to flip this around for us? Yeah, I think starting with like, I'm not again, trying to demonize what's written down. I think it's good to write things down and it's a great way to pass things along, but first understanding who wrote it down. What is their bias? What is their motivation? Where, what is their perspective coming from? And also where did they, like when you wrote the book, you did so much research and you pulled from so many different diverse perspectives and framed your thoughts based on that. And you shared where the perspectives came from. Who was in the room? Who, which community came together to write this? Who was excluded? And making sure that we're thinking through this. And then as we move away from writing, we need to start believing people. We need to start from a place of trust. Right now, I feel like the default is distrust. And I believe, I truly believe we need to role model the behavior we want. So if I want someone to trust me, I need to start by trusting them. And so when it comes to this, when the, one of the first things that happen is, and I was watching a video recently, uh, just this day, but, you know, about all the trans erasure that's going on and the drag queen bans and everything going on and the gun debate. There was a video that's like, uh, that was about this idea is like, oh, I don't trust drag queens, but I'm okay kids having guns. And it's this idea that I will only trust my perspective and my experience. And if anyone says that, hey, I'm just living my life and this is who I am. Nope, that's not going to happen because you are making me uncomfortable or I don't trust you or any of those things. So listen to stories, try to understand what lesson we're trying to get from it instead of just focusing on the content itself. But like, what are we getting out from it? All of us have wisdom. Accept this fact, all humans, all animals, all plants, all life on this planet has wisdom. And we can learn from each other if we just listen, if we just observe. The fungi in the ground is the largest organism in the world. 
in bigger than the blue whale. It, it's multi hectares long and it connects. It's like the brain system for plants and connect passing information around. We can learn so much by just listening to each other and finding knowledge in ways that can be different from the way one way that the colonization system taught us. So, Amy, what are some of the anecdotes you you have <laughs> explored? Well, I I don't think I could have said it better myself. Really, <laughs> like. I think what's important here is to make sh- make us aware of our different ways of understanding um, and just, you know, sitting there. And I think about cognitive empathy in the sense of like taking somebody else's perspective and staying out of judgment um, is, is very hard to do. And so having a, a lifetime of a mindset around curiosity and getting curious about other people and that is not something that is written. <laughs> like um, that is something that is like inherent in all of us that we can build with each other. So this is actually asking me, making me think about our final question here um, is, is this is a question for all of you um, to do some exploration into is what are some other ways of knowing that you can tap into and center your work on that isn't written down? Empathy Power Up is produced by Amy J. Wilson and Kevin Shaw, two people who bonded over their love for creating a deeper sense of empathy in the world. You can reach Amy at Real Amy J. Wilson and Kevin at Shaw Kevin.